Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda and with me is John and we're both culture editors at FT Weekend. Today we're going to be talking about the sharing economy and in particular Uber, which more than any other company brings into focus the problems with the sharing economy, what exactly it is and what kind of culture it fosters. And we'll be speaking to the comedian, actor and presenter Nish Kumar about doing stand-up in the wake of Brexit. Joining us in the studio today is Izzy Kaminska, a reporter for FT Alphaville, the FT's finance blog, and also a friend of the pod. Hello, nice to be here. Not many people get called a friend of the pod. We've only had one other person who's a friend of the pod. I'm very flattered, thank you. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about the sharing economy. One of the biggest players in the sharing economy, Uber, has had a terrible, terrible, terrible few weeks Last week, Grable, the fake version of an app to confuse regulators and competitors, was exposed. It was showing up as cancelled rides for people who they suspected to be regulators when they tried to kind of hail an Uber. They just they couldn't get one, basically. Yeah, outrageous. I would say somewhat typical of what we see from Uber, which is, um, and I think referencing our podcast last week, we were talking about how these digital systems can be gamed. And in this case, we see Uber gaming the system through its own technology. Yeah. So I thought that was quite interesting. And also Travis Kalanick, the founder, was caught having a row with one of his Uber drivers. He came across as being a pretty spoiled, horrible man. (laughs) And he later said he was ashamed and needed to grow up. I mean, it was just another instance of what seems like Uber's kind of pretty rotten corporate culture being exposed. Yeah, there's a sexual harassment case. There was the hashtag delete Uber protest because of his ties to the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, he's actually, he's quit Trump's business advisory council, but, you know, he's had, it's been like PR disaster after PR disaster for Uber recently. And they lost the court case about um, drivers needing to know how to speak English properly. So, all in all, a really bad week. Izzy, going back to the beginning of 2016, when Uber and Airbnb's valuations were going through the roof, it was just a totally rosy picture, good news story. Like, what's happened in that time? Why why is there so much focus on these companies that form part of the sharing economy? Dare I say it, um, I think there's been a bit of irrational exuberance in this sector. So we were deprived of new investment ideas for a very long time. Here comes something they they call the sharing economy. It fits the millennial concept of, of how we're supposed to live our lives these days. And investors just loved it. And um, there was this great opportunity for it to create monopolies. And I think that's what ended up sparing a lot of the um, euphoria with respect to the investment. But nobody really really unpicked it to analyse the model and whether or not it was sustainable. And now that's happening, right? The truth is, is that 
the taxi business is a very low margin business. It always was, always will be. Uber comes along and essentially floods the market with supply. Now, in basic economics, everything is supply and demand. If you don't have any constraints on supply, then naturally you can bring prices down. But Uber wasn't just doing that. It was also subsidising a lot of these uh, rides through their own pocket, through all this investment money. Now, you know, I can invent anything. I literally can come (laughs) and disrupt any market if I just purely undercut it by throwing money at it. I, I don't have to have innovated anything. So it looked on the surface as an like a you know innovative new concept, this app, but really the app is highly replicable. Anybody can develop it. They don't own IP on it. You know, the only differentiation is brand loyalty. But when you have all these PR disasters, and, and it turns out that maybe maybe the brand isn't what you thought it was. Well, like all those people who deleted Uber from their phones after the delete Uber hashtag, apparently, you know, Lyft suddenly was doing much better, which is a similar uh, ride-hailing app. Exactly. It reminds me of a bank run, because really, there's nothing holding back your loyalty apart, you know, so any any sort of confidence issue, and like in the banking world, you can just take your customer away and go to the competitor nothing is is holding you back and yeah. it creates a sort of run on the app and we're also talking about the sharing economy because it's become so prevalent in our culture to uber something is a phrase we all use yeah it's now a verb isn't it yeah. to, to uber i mean i'm embarrassed how much i say it in front of my parents actually they <laughs> kind of take the piss out of me now it's this kind of millennial you know do it should i uber it's a bit naughty it's kind of expensive but actually it's not that expensive so i'm going to do it it's a. Uh, it's become the popular vernacular, and I think um, anything that transcends that, like whether it's to Hoover something or um, I don't know, I can't think of Xeroxing things. Um, you know, you have definitely stepped into the cultural mindset of a, of a generation. Why do we even use this term? the sharing economy shouldn't it be called the app economy or the gig economy? There's nothing really very sharing about it, is there? Or you could call it the feudal economy because there's a. I, I did a piece uh, not not long ago explaining the parallels between the Uber rent extra- extraction model and the old feudal system because in many ways there's a lot of similarities in so much as these are platforms. So compare that to say uh, territory that a lord would control. He dictates who can come in and out, and he dictates how much rent extraction he's to take from from those workers. The workers have no rights. And, and, and it's worse, actually, than the feudal system because in the feudal system, some lords would actually have responsibilities for their serfs, whereas Uber has no responsibility. Well, and you, say, you go as far as to say it's the return of an authoritarian society, right? Precisely. And I think the term sharing economy has been entirely kind of co-opted. Um, it was warm and fuzzy, came from this nice, warm, hippie kind of mentality. But in um, a way, it was kind of nev- it was almost never that much about sharing. I mean, the idea of not owning things, so like the way that we have Spotify rather than physical or even digital music libraries, that's not owning things, but it's not actually sharing them. I think there's a slight difference there. Like when you say to a child, you know, share your toys, that's not like rent your toys. There (laughs) is an element of sharing in that your photos are kind of owned by big corporations. So I suppose you could say you're sharing your photos with... And lots of people can see them. So I guess you're sharing them with your friends. But it's a control relationship, whereas a real sharing economy is a non-monetized economy. It's one where we do things because we get a sort of reciprocity factor from from whatever we're doing. So house swapping, that is the perfect example of a sharing economy. You're not actually making a profit from these swaps, you're doing it because you there is a re- reciprocal incentive. But as soon as you der- derive any rent, 
you're, you're going down the monetization route and it becomes something entirely different. So there are lots of different types of these kind of sharing things, though. As you said, I mean, the kind of peer-to-peer, there's things called share some sugar or snap goods. So this is kind of like borrow a power tool from someone down the road who has one and you don't have one. But, you know, those are things that, like, I can remember growing up, we would do all of those things and go into the neighbours and borrow an egg and, like, you don't need an app for that. I you? hope you didn't just borrow the egg and actually... <laughs> the egg as well. We were in massive debt in our house. <laughs> all the egg debt. Yeah, no, but I mean, <laughs> it is partly just a semantic problem. I think there is a slight backlash against the sharing economy because it is very much not a sharing because economy. Because it's a misnomer. Can we think about whether this is kind of... I mean, there are good things for the consumer about things like Airbnb, Uber, all these other apps that are that are part of the so-called sharing economy. I mean, do we? What are the good things about it? Well, the good things are that it's cheap, and consumers are always going to love products if they're cheap. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's sustainable. So, buying customers by giving away free products is the oldest trick in the book. The real question we should be asking is. Do these models really add to the efficiency of the economy? And it looks increasingly like they don't because they don't actually add economies of scale. They descale the system, if anything, because every Uber driver is now an independent contractor. He has to individually negotiate all his like um, car costs, insurance costs. He's never going to have the same economy of, a, of scale as, say, a small little business, uh, you know, tax minicab service. And same goes for Airbnb. If you're renting out uh, rooms individually, you're not going to have the same economies of scale on cleaning costs or insurance costs as you would do if you were a professional letting agency. Yeah, but let, let's not pretend it's not good for the consumer, for you or I. Like, it I use Uber because it's incredibly, incredibly convenient. It's It might be very easily copied, but it's super, super helpful for me. Ditto Airbnb. But it's not really, it's because it's only effective because the market is massively oversupplied by drivers, most of whom are just not earning enough to pay their basic minimum wages. The I'm not saying it's ethical. It's geared towards the... Con- it's very much mm. geared towards the consumer. There was a ruling in October, of course, in the UK where Uber drivers are now workers, and Uber have tried to... will have a appealed that decision but that's quite a groundbreaking change I think for Uber drivers or or could be in that they're entitled to could be entitled to a minimum wage to sick pay to holiday pay so it's less like being self-employed where you kind of shoulder all of the financial risk well that's great and Uber kind of has it both ways at the moment doesn't it well it's trying to one of the reasons we, you know, consumers get these cheap prices and one of the reasons it's so convenient, you know, unlike if I tap into Halo, whatever, or Addison Lee, I might have to wait 10 minutes for a taxi, whereas with Uber, it's there within two minutes. Well, it says two minutes and then it cancels the ride and then you wait another two minutes and another two minutes. But, yeah, but theoretically... Maybe they it's, think you're a regulator, John. <laughs> yes, exactly. But theoretically, one of the reasons they can service you so quickly is because the market is oversupplied. And whenever anything is oversupplied, somebody somewhere is not... It's is being exploited because the the economy is running at an inefficiency. It's having to carry a lot of spare capital for no real reason. Yes, I see what you're saying, but consumers would love to live on welfare. I mean, it's, but it's welfare. It's 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 not I, sustainable. Yeah, I think there's another problem as well, though, which is you mentioned Airbnb, John, which is is great, and I think you know I have used Uber a lot and Airbnb a lot. But because these are systems run by sort of people full of 
prejudice and not by sort of professionals. The Airbnb problem has been something that was talked about last year. There's a lot of racial discrimination in Airbnb. Apparently, if you have an African-American name, you're 16% less likely to be accepted. And this really has been proven, even kind of anecdotally amongst friends. Whenever I make a booking with my boyfriend, we do it under my name because I just get accepted more. And I think women do because you're, you're seen as less threatening. So there is massive prejudice built into the system, which in a traditional hotel, non-sharing economy system, there just, there just isn't that gap. You know, th- these are all quite new technologies. And with any new technology, there are teething problems. Of course, I think anyone would hope that the problems you've just mentioned are sorted out and, you know, as soon as possible. But I would say it's not really the case <laughs> because it's, um, you know, technology is a step forward, whereas what I think we're doing is actually going backwards to old ways of doing things. This is a regression. You know, I've called this the return of upstairs, downstairs society. In the case of Airbnb, you make a very valid point. This is what comes about with increased amateurization. Professionalism creates economies of scale. We create regulations. People have to provide for minimum standards. And we as a society agree these are the, the standards we want and and desire. With uh, personal contracts, you have all sorts of discrimination, biases, etc. And that is a cost to society. It's a cost for the consumer because you have to do more research. And even though it's all available through the internet, you can't take things for granted like you used to. Yeah, and there's no kind of standardised experience. So my experience of Airbnb or Uber won't be the same as yours. It's kind of messy and human and difficult in that sense. But I think Uber and Airbnb and all of these apps the the kind of sharing economy apps which have been successful have found themselves in the past 12 months particularly kind of mired in more regulation than they were before. I think they're realising they can't just be these like scrappy upstarts because actually they're big players Yeah, they're certainly no longer upstarts, are they? But that's the question, is will their technology be uh, proven once they have to abide by the same rules as everyone else because if it can't then it suggests there wasn't really an innovation there in the first place all it was was regulatory arbitrage and what do you guys think about just the very idea of owning less do you think we fetishize objects material goods i I like the idea of owning less I, i think maybe the reality of owning less is more difficult because we are so used to owning. I mean, maybe particularly in this country, like home ownership is is the thing that we've been talking about a lot. Um, Yeah, so surely we're, you know, we're, I hate the word millennials, like, you know, I'm quite comfortable with the idea of the fact I might never own a car. I hate it, but I'm comfortable where most people my age are comfortable with the idea that home ownership is an incredibly difficult thing to achieve. No, we're, we are getting more and more used to used to. Yeah, these. And we're used to kind of renting films and not having physical DVDs exactly. and not having physical music. So, I mean, well, th- there's, there's even an app for walking a dog, which uh, I'm quite Is keen it called to borrow give... my doggy. Yeah, something like that. I'm keen to give it a try. <laughs> there's a famous adage that you never really own your house; your house owns you. And I think that's true, um, and I can see why this sort of ownerless um, society can be quite attractive, especially to the young mobile generation that has no responsibilities. But at the same time, it creates this tragedy of the commons effect because nobody ever owns anything, nobody ever really invests in it. And if you're sharing stuff, you never really care to repair it. And, and you see that as a... As a Pole uh, who grew up in a, in a household of, of sort of what I would call anti-communists, um, there was a dark side to all that communist utopianism, which was that uh, essentially the, there was always a premium for stuff that you really did own truly yourself because it was always better taken care of than the stuff that was publicly shared. 
And like any system where there's a hierarchy and where there's power, there's going to be abuse of that power and there will always be people who do own things, even if most of us don't own things. I mean, the interesting idea is this... The big revolution in terms of the golden age of prosperity was the dawn of appliance culture. And we all owned our, like the washing machine, the Hoover empowered us because we owned these devices and they helped to make um, they helped to make us more efficient. But in the next phase of of tech utopianism, we're going to the IoT, the Internet of Things, where everything will be smart and you won't just own your fridge outright. You'll be paying every month to subscribe to like whatever intelligent plan that it's whatever it's doing for you. And so you go from this sort of what I would call autonomous, independent mode of living to a rental society. How many subscriptions do you guys have? I mean, like compared to my life when I was a kid, I had like maybe maybe one subscription to NME. <laughs> and then get that for free these days. Oh, I don't know. There are loads. Netflix, Amazon. I've got friends who are like giving up Uber for Lent. I mean, it's like that, actually. It's ridiculous. That's so millennial. Not giving up chocolate, but giving up giving Uber. Giving up Uber for Lent. Fantastic. That is actually brilliant. <laughs> okay. On that note, thank you very much for joining us, Izzy. And we'll see you soon. Okay, so Nish Kumar, the stand-up comedian, actor and radio presenter, has just been in the studio. Wow, he was cool. He was great. He was in the studio for quite a long time. Yeah, we, yeah. he speaks a lot, laughs a lot. We couldn't really get rid of him. But, um, <laughs> we didn't really want to get rid of him. He no. was so nice. Yeah, he's, he's obviously a comedian, but I actually came to his work through an essay he wrote called The Confused Muslim, which was in the book The Good Immigrant, which was kind of an unexpected success last year. It's basically a collection of essays written by people of colour. But you you came to his work through comedy, right? Yeah, at the Edinburgh Festival. I've seen him a couple of times up there. His comedy, his style is very nice. He's kind of exactly as he was in the studio. Well, his very, jokes are long, right? His joke takes a long time. He doesn't hurry his jokes. I know. I YouTubed some to try and get a good sense. And other than the fact he comes across as really dry, which I love, they, very long. They take long. a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. punchlines no, are delayed. Yeah, he tells these kind of politically involved sort of his his politics is kind of left wing but he he sort of wears it lightly he doesn't ram it down your throat and he's um he's kind of self-effacing self-mocking even his style is kind of nice though he's he's an affable kind of friendly guy he's not one of these comedians who's very mean and he's also not a sort of comedian who's very socially awkward he's sort of somewhere between the two a comedian who isn't socially awkward wow (laughs) that's a rare thing but it's a good point you make like um for like our American listeners who maybe don't watch um, as many British comedy TV shows as we perhaps do, a lot of comedians on them are like really harsh, like super negative, very kind of cutting. Whereas very unkind. Comes, yeah. yeah. His new show is at the Soho Theatre in London. It's called Actions Speak Louder Than Words Unless You Shout the Words Real Loud. It's actually quite typical of Nish Kumar to have a long title. He's had other shows called Long Word, Long Word, Blah, 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 I'm So Clever, which as listeners will hear when they hear the interview, is very Nish Kumar. (laughs) Okay, on that note, here he is. Everyone wants to know about your worst gig. I hope that people ask other comedians about their worst gig this often, because it does concern me that everyone's like, Nish, tell us a time about you. You must have been bad at your job. (laughs) Like People always want to know that. The truth is there are so many... I've been chased off stage by a heavy metal band who thought that they were performing in the slot that I was in the middle of performing in. 
I was about to say booed off stage. I did not get booed off stage. I did not leave the stage. I was booed in situ. <laughs> like that, and I mean that was to the December two thousand and fifteen. The crowd did not enjoy my hot take on the issues of the day. I, you know, I'm an experienced performer. I know that I've got to do my time to get my money, so I simply refuse to leave the stage. <laughs> I've always been interested in politics and current affairs and stuff, but since I was a, a child, the thing that has interested me most of all is comedy. And so it is really hard for me to say what else I'd be doing because it is the one consistent thread. You know, I, ca I can't remember a time where I didn't watch The Simpsons. You know, like, I, I, pro I think I must have started watching that when I was four or five years old. So it's like hardwired in the coding of my brain is comedy I, I honestly can't envision what my what I would be doing I'd like to think that I'd be some sort of rock star there's part of me that always wanted to be the first person of Malayali extraction to be on the cover of Rolling Stone but I'm not sure that's gonna happen now <laughs> In the immediate aftermath of the referendum and the immediate aftermath of the Trump vote, there was a real sense of defiance and people wanting to hear jokes about this and laughing about it. What I'm finding now is we're out of that shock period. The collective realisation has sort of dawned on us that this is now something that we have to live with. In that instance, it's a really hard line to keep people laughing when it does seem like at the minute everything is, at least in the immediate future, dreadful. What you want to do really with an Edinburgh show is work it up to Edinburgh and use performing every day for a month at the festival to really hone it and make sure that you've got a kind of finished product and then take that on tour. But with this tour, it has just been absolute carnage in order to stay up with current events it has been a testing <laughs> it has been a really really testing thing just when you think the world has peaked in terms of its insane capacity to self-destruct it has found new depths to plumb the general consensus amongst people i know who are not comedians is that this is a, must be a great time for me to be doing comedy and I must wake up every morning, open the my computer and see the world imploding and think, cha-ching. But what you have to remember is if things really go bad, I have no transferable skills. So in the event of some sort of Mad Max Road Warrior style apocalypse, I am going to be almost immediately sacrificed for meat. I have been asking myself what the point is of doing comedy about politics every day since the referendum. I don't have a definitive answer yet. There is a part of me that thinks, well, is this not the epitome of fiddling as Rome burns?
I don't believe that comedy, or certainly the comedy that I'm doing, is going to change anyone's minds. But what I think it can provide is a sort of release valve for people who maybe feel like the world is spiralling out of control. The night of the referendum, I was doing a gig at the comedy store in Piccadilly Circus, and a man told me to go home. It was a disorientating experience. As a comedian, you're used to being heckled about your material or your appearance or anything, but I've never experienced somebody heckling me because of my race. I have always felt in Britain it wasn't necessary for a comedian to address their race in a way that I'm told by friends of mine who are or have worked in America that in America there is an expectation that you have to address your ethnicity to some extent. But I didn't feel like I had to. I felt like for me it was something that I was I was choosing to. It's a subject that interests me and my first two shows are very autobiographical Outside of comedy, my race has been a sort of interesting and very defining element of my life. I went to secondary school and university in institutions and, to be honest, geographical locations that weren't particularly ethnically diverse. And so it's always something that has kind of bubbled under the surface. was a really important part of growing up for me it was working out where you fit in in predominantly uh, white environments my parents are i think very typical british asian immigrants to the extent that my mother was born in kenya so like a lot of british asians have roots in east africa my dad moved here in the sort of early 80s they're both they're both from kerala in south india and so there is this kind of immigrant thing where you have your kids have to work hard because I think a lot of immigrants feel as though their position is unstable and so what they want for their children is for their children to be integrated into the system and the easiest way to be integrated is to be doctor or a lawyer or become some kind of integral cog in the infrastructure of a country don't be unnecessary, because if you're unnecessary, they might boot you. <laughs> the last thing they wanted was for me to be a freelance performer. I'm a very specific age where I grew up in the late 1990s. Now, there was a lot about that period that we should all regret, whether it's the North American Free Trade Agreement or our habit of wearing tracksuits. But the late 1990s, I think, was a good time to be growing up if you weren't white, because actually there was a real emphasis on tolerance of non-white people. There was a lot of visibility. I've said this on a number of occasions. I don't believe I would be doing comedy if it wasn't for goodness gracious me. The comedy came from the culture clash growing up as a British Asian person and in equal parts about making fun of the foibles and behaviours of Asians living in Britain as it was about making fun of white people's responses to uh, Asians in Britain. 
My chapter in The Good Immigrant book is about a very strange thing that happened to me in 2013, where a publicity shot of me was taken by someone in America. We think, but we're not 100% sure. But um, it was on an American meme website called quickmeme.com. The caption was a confused Muslim. And on the picture, someone had written, angry that Christians insulted my prophet, cannot insult Jesus as he was a prophet too. So with me, I was the confused Muslim. And I'm not a Muslim, but I was very confused. They'd found my picture because if you Google the words confused Muslim, my face appears because there's a joke of mine that was quoted in a review of my 2012 Edinburgh show where I described myself as being one of the few people who's regularly confused with being both a Jew and a Muslim. That is a pretty bang on description of my face. That joke means that if you Google the words confused Muslim, my face appears and the other two images are Ahmed Jalili and Jesus Christ. I see myself as a midpoint between Ahmed and the Messiah. Roger Federer, he has found his voice in tennis. <laughs> I think it's safe to say he has completed tennis. The thing about comedy is that I don't think it ever ends. For me, my comedy is really intrinsically linked to who I am as a person. And I am still in a process of discovering who I am as a person. <laughs> you know, to work out what works and what doesn't work, you very often have to do gigs where you'd go 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then on really bad occasions, a full hour where you just stink the place out. I just know that I'm about to really spoil some people's evenings. <laughs> <laughs>